Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast episode number 47. Okay. Maybe that can be our intro for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, it, it was pretty cool to see, though. I actually wish I had this uh, one participant video recorded because, you know, I, I randomized the conditions, but I had her do um, a metronome first. And she walked around to that. Mm-hmm. And then I put the music on and she began moving incredibly well. She started crying. She couldn't believe you know, that she was able to do this. And just seeing that it mm. on somebody. And, and, you know, most of the participants had, had a really great response, but this one in particular was pretty special. The Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast, the podcast dedicated to inspiring dancers worldwide whose hearts have been touched by music and dance. The universal language of dance and music is spoken by many of us throughout the world. We want to motivate the dancer in you by sharing stories, insights, and ideas to enhance your journey. Join us now with your host, Charles Ogar. Hello, hello, everyone. This is Charles with the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast, and I'm back I'm sorry that it's been a while of me not having the podcast, but the travel schedule has been so crazy. In the previous podcast here, you guys were listening to my recap of my European Kiss trip. We had 30 people from North America over to Paris and Luxembourg to have a really fun time there. So we're back and I'm happy to have our guest with us now, Kristen Suwalski who has been listening to the podcast as well and kind of listening to some of the things and seeing some of the things I do on Facebook. And I believe it was a Facebook comment or something like that where she said that you use dance to help people improve their mobility with Parkinson's disease. And that really, really struck my interest. And I know we've been playing like communication tag for a couple of months now, but we finally able to a point where we have a breather and now we're able to have you on the show. How are you doing, Kristen? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Charles. So our audience know can find out a little bit more about you. Would you mind them go ahead and telling them that you are definitely a dancer and then we can get a little bit into your academic background as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been involved in dance on and off throughout my whole life. I think it actually initially started when uh, my mother was pregnant with me. She took uh, ballet classes, so that may have sort of triggered something from the get-go. She took ballet um, while she was pregnant with you? Yes, she did. That's she awesome. Did. So, so I think that was the start. <laughs> but um, after that, when I was about three, she enrolled me in what was called a creative movement class, uh, pretty much just running around, toddlers running around a room. Um, but that did lead to 14 years of, of classical uh, ballet training. So that's sort of the, the base from which all my other dances started from. Mm-hmm. And then um, I kind of took a break for a little bit when I was uh, sort of a late teenager. I got into horseback riding and some other sports. Um, 
But when I was in chiropractic school, uh, some friends of mine actually said, hey, let's go out and salsa dance. So I'd, I'd heard about it. I hadn't really done done anything like that before, but I went. Was that I your first taste? Come. I'm sorry, was that your first taste of partner dancing? Yes, it was. It was my very first taste of partner dancing, and it was in St. Louis, Missouri. I went to Viva, Club Viva, um, and Kelly Brown, who is a salsa instructor and a, an amazing musician. Um, yes, he is. I like yeah. I love Kelly. <laughs> Kelly, if you're listening, I hope to see you in Austin for Neo Kids. <laughs> so, yeah, he was leading the class, and I just fell in love with it. Um, so I was pretty much hooked from there and I spent a few more months there and danced with him uh, he's now currently in Seattle um, and then after that I went out to I lived in Boulder Colorado and that's really where I, I began dancing regularly I started dancing mostly salsa and bachata for three to four nights a week um, I took some lessons with people like Eric Freeman um, Joseph Snowhawk and uh, Yolanda Shedd and um, it just became a huge part of my life at that point when I was out in Colorado. Um, and then I moved to Florida after about three years of living in Colorado. And I was very, very fortunate to stumble upon um, Jordan Tanya or Ataka and La Alemana uh-huh. uh, from Island. I, I was with them around in around 2008 or 2009 in their very early stages. So... I only danced with them for about six months before I moved down to Naples, but they were a pleasure, and I was I was uh, very fortunate to work with them for a brief period of time. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So then, when I was in Naples, mm-hmm. uh, I did I branched out a little bit. So I did continue some salsa and bachata with um, Anthony, or known as Kumo. Uh, Tineo down in Naples, but I, I also began to do some West Coast swing with Johnny and Lisa Mar, and then I did some swing with uh, Hugo Miguez as well, and then I, I dabbled a little bit in ballroom with Paul Stewart, so that's kind of been the my dance background for, for quite some time now. It's a bit varied, and then when I moved up to Gainesville, I actually didn't dance for about three years, but I started socially dancing again, and then Koji Hosaka from Salsa Mundial did invite me to start start teaching with them yes definitely koji's awesome and i just recently saw you guys here at the unity of dance festival in orlando so it was also there dancing in the kizumba room trying to get that scene started you know yeah that was a blast that's one kizumba is one dance i need some work on so (laughs) i'm glad to be in touch yeah definitely definitely so you have this history of dance throughout salsa ballet west coast swing and things like that and you said Mm -hmm. While you were studying your doctor of chiropractic, uh, I think you have here in 2006 is when you got introduced into salsa. So you have your dance world and you have your academic world. And just recently now, you kind of have them kind of merge or collide, if you will. So go ahead and give our audience a little bit of history about your academic background. And then let's hear the story of how these things kind of came together for you. Sure, sure. So... Um, I think it was my dance, uh, my interest in dance growing up that really led me to study human movement, and I've been studying it for quite some time. Um, I did my bachelor's degree in exercise science at Appalachian State. Um, I finished that degree in 2002, and, you know, really looking at how exercise improves health and human performance. Um, And that led me to my chiropractic career, so I went uh, straight into chiropractic after that, and 
um, with that, you're, you're pretty much a mechanic for the human body and you're, you're increasing movement and increasing performance by making sure that your joints are moving optimally, your balance or, mu- or um, your muscles are balanced across the joints, um, did things like acupuncture and nutrition. Um, but then I really got into the rehab side of things, which was had a very profound impact on my clients mm-hmm. or my patients. Um, and so when I practiced out in Boulder, Colorado, but then I practiced uh, down in Naples, Florida. And when I was in Naples, it's it's a, more of a retirement community. So I had a lot of elderly clients or, and patients. I had uh, my patients, my chiropractic patients would end up doing rehab with me and then they wanted more. So I would do some personal training with them. And I just saw some very dramatic improvements mm-hmm. in, their, in their mobility. And then also being involved in dance, you know, I see many dancers of all ages um, but particularly of, of uh, more of the elderly age that it's just their movement and their happiness uh, is dramatically affected by dance and by just activity. So I wanted to study more. You know, I was in practice for six years and I just I just wanted more. I'm, I'm a very curious person. I got you. Uh, so I decided to go back to school and study human movement. So that's when I decided to go to the University of Florida and do a Ph.D., um, in health and human performance, and specifically in the Applied Neuromechanics Lab. Applied Neuromechanics. Can you explain what neuromechanics is to our listeners in case they've never heard those two words put together before? Sure, absolutely. I know that's that's a mouthful there. Um, So really, it's a biomechanics lab. So we study uh, human movement. And we say neuromechanics because our primary populations are people who have Uh, neurodegenerative disorders uh, Mm -hmm. such as as Parkinson's disease and so we really try to come up with new ways or improve other ways to um, increase their balance abilities and their walking abilities and our lab has the ability to look at many different things like orthopedic studies as well but my focus has been mostly on Parkinson's disease um, and some with aging and uh, my my interest in aging, I think I sort of covered, but my interest in Parkinson's disease did come about from um, some family members on my mom's side mm-hmm. having the disease and seeing that. And, you know, movement is, has aff- affected my life in such a, a way that, you know, when I see that being decreased by a disorder, it just, it seemed, it's quite a nightmare. So I really wanted to uh, do something to help this particular population. Awesome, awesome. Um, so with your family members, were they kind of, your first test subjects to kind of try with different dancing and things like that? How did that, how did that ball start rolling? Right. So they weren't, uh, my family members who have the disorders are actually in a different part of the country. They're in the Midwest. Um, so unfortunately I wasn't able to work directly with them, but, uh, our lab is set up to collaborate with the UF center for movement disorders. They're amazing group. Um, so, Naturally, with my interest in dance, I looked into that, and we have a Center for Arts and Medicine at UF that has a program um, of dance for Parkinson's disease. So I was able to test several of the subjects in our lab and uh, put some numbers to their movement and really measure the effects of like a 16-week dance training program on their balance and walking abilities. And um, so that was a pretty pretty exciting thing for me to do. That was my first you know, the time that I was able to merge my professional life or my academic career with my, my, uh, my with personal dance passions. Line. And you said there was a, a, a dance center for Parkinson's? So there's a center for arts and medicine. And uh, okay. particular programs, um, different programs, but one of them is dance for Parkinson's disease. 
And dance has actually become very, very popular for this particular group around the country. Um, thanks uh, mostly to the Mark Moritz Dance Company, um, and they've developed their own dance for Parkinson's thing and sort of spreading around the world now. Um, and now the, the re- research is sort of starting to catch up to to the popularity of the dance to to show that there are pro- uh, improvements, um, scientifically show this, um, in addition to just, you know, the enjoyment that people get from it. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. So may I ask what kind of dancing you guys were doing? Like what, like walk us through like the 16 with program, like what will be one of the things that you do or see that movement? Can you walk us through that process a little bit? Sure. sure. So I wasn't the one actually leading this, but I was able to test these participants, but I did go and participate in a couple of the classes to really get a feel for what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And they start out with some seated exercises. So, so let me just give a background on Parkinson's disease. So, Yeah, it's a movement disorder, so it's primarily motor symptoms or, or movement symptoms. There are other symptoms that are non-motor, but um, uh, like sometimes we see depression, anxiety, and other things like that. But overall, it's, it's categorized as movement disorder. So it's it's considered hypokinetic, meaning less movement. So there's a region in the brain that starts to degenerate. We're still not exactly sure why, but that region is responsible for producing dopamine. And dopamine kind of acts like the gas in your car, right? You need gas to be able to move or be, to be able to go. So when dopamine is depleted, what happens is we see a slowing of movement. Uh, we see uh, slower strides, uh, shorter strides or, or steps. Um, we see decrease in posture, sort of a hunching over. We see a reduction in arm swing. So overall movement just sort of gets reduced. And the body's actually capable of producing relatively normal movements but the signal going from the brain telling the body what to do is what's disrupted um so that's kind of the population we're working with now with the dance class so we we have them start seated Mm -hmm. do different exercises from there to get warmed up emphasizing big movements because movements are typically smaller and then they go to uh the bar and they have a variety of exercises that they can do there working on mobility and balance and then sometimes they'll do floor exercises or floor routines sometimes it's on their own sometimes it's with a partner and often the partner is either um, a significant other that may come or Mm -hmm. one of um, its faculty so it sort of produces a variety of some modern some ballet elements Um, it just sort of sort of depends on on a particular class but um, yeah, for the participants that I tested, they were doing this about three days a week for 16 weeks. And there's a lot of research that's shown that movement improves. There are a lot of clinical scales. And what I was able to do is to do some biomechanical analyses and, and really put numbers to, to their balance and to their walking and, and show that type of, type of change to um, back up the other research. That's awesome. That's awesome. So that was the program there um, and the dance center there. How and I remember in, in the beginning of the podcast, you said that you did your dissertation. Was there a time period between you working with that particular group of people and you deciding to actually take this on? into your PhD studies? Yeah, exactly. So this was a study that I was able to jump into kind of early on. Um, So the program was already going on and then I was able to to be the one to test it in our lab. So 
uh, as part mm-hmm. of the doctoral program, you, you get involved in multiple projects, but at the end, you are responsible for doing your dissertation, which is your time to do your independent project. So I drew from my interest in dance and really looked at the musical component um, mm-hmm. and looked at the rhythm and the musical aspect of, of dance. So that's how sort of my, my dissertation topic evolved. Um, so when people with Parkinson's disease walk, as I mentioned before, they are slower, they take shorter steps, they take slower steps, they're kind of hunched over, their arm swing reduces. So um, one of the ways that physical therapists enable them to walk more is by providing a rhythm. Um, that's often through a metronome or a piece of music. Um, so this is commonly done and it's it's been shown to be beneficial. It's been shown to incre- increase velocity, increase the, the size of the step that they're taking. And then if you increase mm-hmm. the rhythm or the beats per minute, they're gonna walk faster, right? They're gonna sort of match that beat and, and step to the beat. So this is all stuff that's, that's pretty well established, but um, the kind of problem that I had with and my questions about it are in the fact that a metronome and music are used sort of in, interchangeably. They're just sort of used under this term of auditory, rhythmic auditory cueing, but no one cue has been determined to be more beneficial than another. So my goal was to determine kind of what the optimal cue is. And so the optimal cue, is that the tone or a sound or what do you mean by right, the cue? Right, So I had two main questions that I... Um, asked for this so the -hmm. first one is looking at a metronome beat right when we um, listen to a metronome it's set to perfectly timed intervals right Mm -hmm. yeah i remember you telling me about this this yeah so but the issue is that when we walk no two steps are the same right one's a little bit faster one might be a little bit slower we have some natural variability step to step so this variability is actually healthy. Um, and if you look at it over time, it's not random. There's actually a pattern to it. Um, and the pattern is described as fractal in nature, um, just meaning fractal in fractal. nature. Yeah. So a fractal is a sort of a self similar pattern if you look at it over time. So there's there's change. Mm-hmm. But if we look at it over time, we see some sort of pattern or some sort of self similarity to it. It's it's thought that this level of variability is um, it allows us to like adapt to certain situations in the environment and it allows us to reflect on on previous steps, um, maybe things that we've learned in previous steps and apply them to future steps. So it allows us to adapt to the environment. So interesting. Um, the the problem with the metronome is that it's perfect, right? But healthy walking isn't perfect. So what I did with one part of my uh, dissertation project is have people with Parkinson's disease walk to a fractal metronome. So with this natural variability built into it, um, and they were able to uh, adhere to that and adapt um, their, their stepping, their cadence, their stride to this new beat. So with some variation, so it's not perfect, but it allows them to have some variability that's more healthy for them what's more similar to people say in their 20s walking so is it possible to get like a 30 second to a minute sample of what that fractal metronome can sound like uh let me see if i can pull that up
so it sounds like, you know, you can imagine a perfect metronome, right? Well, mm-hmm. it, it's set to that same overall average beat, but sometimes it'll speed up just a little bit and then it'll slow down just a little bit. So it really essentially forces the person to to adapt, right? They Instead of just staying at a very steady pace, they can speed up as needed and then slow down as needed. So um, that's what, what my data showed is that they were able to follow this pattern and able to adapt, which may ultimately be more healthy. Okay, I got you. So with the fractal metronome, that was able to help them get back into the stride to kind of replicate a more natural walking pattern. Yeah, yeah? exactly. Yep. The, the whole idea is to try to try to get them to walk in a more quote healthy manner, which means similar to that of someone in their 20s. <laughs> Let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors. Have you been looking to level up your Kizomba, but you don't have the local instructors to take you there? Are you looking for something concrete to practice with your Kizomba partner? Or are you looking for Kizomba lessons that you can take on your schedule and the comfort of your home? If you answered yes to any of these questions, look no further. LearnToKids.com is what you need. Progressive, step-by-step lessons that you can take at your pace in the comfort of your home or anywhere with a solid internet connection on your PC, Mac, or any smartphone. New videos are added every month. You can try this awesome resource out 30 days free at learntokids.com slash podcast. After the 30 days free, it's only a low $15 per month. But again, the special offer for the Dance Your Heart On Fire listeners, 30 days free at learntokids.com slash podcast. You won't find this offer anywhere else. Learntokids.com slash podcast. And now back to our show. Nice, nice, nice. And you said that was the first question that you were asking. Was the second question? Yes, absolutely. And this one is probably uh, more interesting to the dance crowd. So mm-hmm. I mentioned either a metronome or a piece of music is used in the cueing um, just to provide a beat, right, for people to entrain their walking to. Um, and, and they're considered kind of the same thing. Um, but as most listeners can probably understand, you know, there are different components to music beyond just that baseline beat, right? There's there's various melodies, there's different riffs, there's sort of themes, there's vocals, there's a lot of different layerings to to the music that that could potentially alter movement. Um, and one of those things is that music elicits emotion. And mm-hmm. so I actually um, measured emotion in this study uh, through an affect. Okay, okay. You measured emotion. Okay, you have to explain <laughs> that process. That sounds really yeah, fascinating. So with this, what I well, the setup was sort of comparing walking to a metronome to a piece of music set to the same beats per minute, and to see if there were any differences. So, um, so in addition to measuring the differences in movement, I had them listen to either the metronome or the piece of music, and then after that, they rated how they were feeling. So there's a scale where um, it's a grid, there's on the horizontal uh, grid or axis, they rate Mm -hmm. uh, whether it made them feel sleepy or more uh, aroused. And then on the Mm -hmm. horizontal axis, it goes from not pleasant to pleasant. So that's sort of an affect grid. It's a way to measure emotion. So I had them select where they identified with on this chart and what emotion that they were feeling. So overall, when comparing a metronome to music, 
I saw increases in velocity, increases in step length, increases in arm swing velocity, increases in arm swing range of motion. And then additionally, it was rated as uh, a more pleasant and more arousing piece to listen to than the metronome. So potentially that emotional component contributed to the improvement in walking. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really awesome. So it's, it's kind of like, I guess, if our listeners are listening, when you are dancing to the steps and you kind of feel a little bit robotic, like you would like just dancing to a metronome with no feeling, mm-hmm. you know? Versus actually getting emotionally involved in your dance, and that kind of changes your step. And it reminds me of the podcast that I did of the thinkers and the feelers, because the thinkers are definitely more of the counters, and and the feelers or people who have more feeler tendencies are the ones that feel the music a lot more, but sometimes aren't very aware of like the technique that they mm-hmm. have, and like trying to find that balance between both. So it's interesting to have that parallel, and then and then hear that in your studies that you had for your dissertation. So that's awesome. Yeah, it was very fun to study. And um, I did, the thing is, I did choose one piece of music in particular. It was uh, Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. (laughs) Okay. Maybe that can be our intro for the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, it it was pretty cool to see, though. I actually wish I had this uh, one participant video recorded because you know, I, I randomized the conditions, but I had her do um, a metronome first. And she walked around to that. Mm-hmm. And then I put the music on and she began moving incredibly well. She started crying. She couldn't believe, you know, that she was able to do this. And just seeing that it mm. on somebody and, you know, most of the participants had, had a really great response. But this one in particular was pretty special. So... That's yeah, awesome. you know, so that's that's the reason why I want to do this. You know, I want to optimize the way um, that people with Parkinson's can, can train um, and improve their movement. And so the idea is to select the most optimal cue. And uh, overall, ideally, it's a piece of music that naturally has a fractal structure to it, a fractal beat structure, which mm-hmm. interestingly, there is a group in Germany that have uh, shown that certain pieces of music um, when the baseline beat is produced by a human rather than like a, a digitally um, synthesized beat, um, that a human producing a beat who's healthy, it, it naturally has that, that fractal variability to it. So overall, music wins. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So now that you've done your dissertation, how long has it been since you've submitted that? So just recently. So I I, uh, I just graduated actually with my PhD. Congratulations. <laughs> and so my dissertation, that means I, I passed. I passed my dissertation defense and I'm currently uh, moving this out towards publication. That's awesome. So now that you've had these foundings, I'm not sure. I think we talked about it a little bit in the pre-chat of like how mm-hmm. groundbreaking this is and see like if this is something that's going to be implemented to other centers across the country that are also dealing with uh, patients that are suffering from Parkinson's or what does what do the next steps right. look so like? So this is, you know, an acute condition. So they're I'm just showing what happens while they're listening to the music. So the idea is to publish Mm -hmm. this and then take this same sort of model and apply it in a longitudinal study, a training study to say, Hey, let's have them walk for, you know, 20 minutes with this piece of music, three days a week for say again, 16 weeks. 
another study would mm-hmm. be ideal to see if there are more long-term benefits. Um, and then, you know, the, the more uh, numbers you can put to back up what's going on and, and publish those results, then, then it, the more evidence we have to say, hey, you know, look at your centers, look at what the physical therapists are doing. This is the data that says this piece of music is more beneficial. So we recommend that you start using this. So it's, it's a sort of uh, process that has to occur over some time. But that's the idea is I hope to you know, select the most optimal pieces of music and continue to study and, and look further and further into that um, so that we can recommend um, what's ultimately best. That's awesome. And can I ask, like, what are your future goals now that you have accomplished and you've graduated from sure. uh, the University of Florida with your PhD? What are you looking forward to in the next three months, six months, right. a year? So I'm in uh, application process and talking with a couple different groups. Um, so I can't reveal exactly yet where I'm going, but um, I definitely mm-hmm. uh, will end up landing at a place, hopefully, that allows me to continue to pursue uh, studying music and studying dance. So um, the ways that I can do that is after you get your PhD, you can do a postdoc, typically a period mm-hmm. of two to three years where you do further research and and do further publications and um, and then you ultimately end up taking a sort of faculty position as an assistant professor and you work your way up through there. So, so those are my goals and uh, that's all sort of in the works for me right now. So hopefully soon I can report where I land. That'll be awesome. I'm happy for you. Thank you. All right, Kristen. Well, thank you so much for sharing your process of what you've been finding through the dance. Thank you for sharing your dance history and your academic background. It's really awesome what you're doing. And it's really awesome to see people benefiting from dance in a way that we're not necessarily used to, you know. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate you sharing your story. And if anybody listening is interested in what you're saying, how would you recommend that person get in contact with you? Oh, sure. Um, so I do have a, I have a, a dance profile um, on Facebook. It's Kristen S. Dance. Okay. So the dance group or community can probably best uh, contact me that way. If you're not on Facebook, um, I can release my email. Okay, um, I can put a link you... for that in the, okay, in sure. the notes as well. But you can, sure. you can throw out your email. Go ahead. Sure, it's K for Kristen, L for Lynn Sawalski, S-O-W-A-L-S-K-Y at gmail.com. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I'll be sure to put the link of your dance page in the podcast notes as well as your email. Yes? Great. All right, Kristen, did you have any parting words of inspiration for the dance world before we say goodbye? (laughs) Uh, Just keep on dancing. Just keep on dancing. Definitely. All right, Kristen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Charles. Thank you for checking out the Dance Your Heart on Fire podcast today. Be sure to check out neokizomba.com for links to everything that we chatted about today, as well as some awesome free resources to enhance your Kizomba journeys. Stay in the